when did you sort of first bump into the people that they refer to as the Essex boys? So there's a big myth about Pate, right? He came out of prison in, I think it was June or July, 94, and he was in a cafe in South End. Oh, obviously there was that famous death at Raquel's, the Leobets. He went, Bernie, you're not gonna believe who I've got to play you in this film. I thought he was gonna say Barry off EastEnders, right? <laughs> so I had this big, like bread knife thing, and I said to my mother, I'll go in there when he's asleep and kill him, you know what I mean? She got this guy to go into Rackhills to buy the pills. She never, she wasn't even in the club. You haven't mentioned, um, obviously, Carmen Leach at all. I know you and him have, have never seen uh, eye to eye. His phone is picked up at Rettendon, right, off the transmitters. For people jumping through the window during interviews to escape. They were being thrown through the windows right. and murdered by the police. Would you say that that weekend with those three events, do you think that was the beginning of the end? So I want to say a big thank you to all their sponsors for making this podcast happen. Without you, we wouldn't be here. Stargaze Entertainment, thank you so much. These guys are hosting celebrity events up and down the country, giving you the opportunity to get up close and personal with your favourite celebrities. Sure Pure CBD, your natural path to wellness and balance. Dream mentoring for your mentoring needs. If you need some positivity in your life, Tom Smith is the man. And finally, to Carson and Kay solicitors, the UK's leading criminal law firm, to help get you out of any tricky situations you may find yourself in after watching this podcast. To find out more about any of their sponsors, click on the links in the description below. Hi, this is Terry Stone, and welcome to episode one of the Criminal Connection podcast. Today, we've got a very special guest. This is the first time in his life that he's actually agreed to do a podcast. So I'm honoured that Mr. Bernard O'Mahony is joining us today. So thanks for coming on, Bernie. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. You know, we've sort of uh, been in touch for many years. And I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff on the internet. There's lots of stuff online. There's lots of people saying different things. But I think, you know, for anybody who knows your name or has read your books, um, I think they'd actually like to actually know a little bit about you. So, um, you know, where, where was you born, Bern? I was born actually in the street, my mother collapsed in the street, in Graham Road, Dunstable, Bedfordshire. Right, okay. I'm not a brummy bee, I was actually born in, in Luton, as most right. people addressed me as. My father worked in the Vauxhall car factory there, and both my parents are Irish. When I was about six, he got a job in Staffordshire, a place called Codsall, which is a suburb of Wolverhampton. Right, okay. And then we moved up there and I was kind of dragged up there really, but it's only like a, it's not a large village, but it's not, it's not an inner city place. You know what I mean? It's, it's quite a nice village. So, so you pretty much you grew up, you know, in Birmingham. Um, that in the in the Midlands, yeah. In the Midlands, yeah. And, and then obviously growing up when you were at school, was you was you sporty or did you box or did you you know? Well, I think the police and the military would describe it as a hostile environment. <laughs> My father, for what you know, when he was. Uh, Born, he, he's a product of a, uh, he was born out of wedlock in the 1930s in Southern Ireland. And so he was seen as, um, you know, child of the devil type thing. And the minute he was born, 
he was taken from his mother and brought up in workhouses, which were a big thing in the 30s and the 20s and all that. And so he had no childhood and he had a, a brutal childhood and he really resented my mother showing us affection. He was extremely violent. The most violent person I've ever read about, seen, heard in my life. Wow. He, he didn't care what he hit you with or stuck in you or whatever. And because of that, we used to go, I used to go to school, like a bomb waiting to go off. I resented the other kids' happiness and my dad did this. And so I always ended up fighting. So, you know, the only qualification I got at school was my red swimming badge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's funny, because like when I when I grew up, my dad was similar to that, but it doesn't sound as bad as, as your yeah. dad. Um, and, uh, you know, my mum and dad sort of split up. And then I ended up, you know, taking up boxing. Um, and, and, you know, that's because I was getting bullied at school and stuff. And, and then I started to bully the bullies. So it's, it's, it's interesting. So, uh, but you never did any, any boxing or anything. You just, no, just fought. My, my youngest son, Paddy, does now. Right. But, but because it's a great thing for kids, you know what I mean? Yeah. To, to instill that discipline. And you, you don't get boxers going around pubs. You might get the odd one. But generally, they're well behaved and know how to conduct themselves. So it's a good... It's a good thing to put kids into, but I just just went along with the flow, really, just right. attacking people and getting in trouble. And it's funny because when you're young, the teachers are going, you'll never be any good, your police are going, you'll never be any good, you'll never be any good. But because you're rebellious and attacking the system, attacking the teachers, attacking the police, there's a crowd of little kids behind you going, oh, he's, he's proper, he's, he's a nutcase, he's a great guy. So you've got like a... Following of people, like right. a gang, if you like. So, all this thing the adults are telling you is that you'll never be any good. You'll ne you think well, you can't be right because all these people think I'm oh, marvellous. Do you mean? Right. And and you find the worst things you do, the more adoration you get from your right. pals. You know what I mean? You know, you start doing worse things, and because you're so young, you don't realise you're actually destroying yourself. Yeah, you know you're mean? kind of becoming a product of your environment. Yeah. And you're destroying yourself, which is quite sad, really, for when you're older and you look back. But that's the way it was. And, you know, I left home when I was 16 for my mother's sake, really, because I was going to kill my father. He, I said to my mother one night on the stairs, he was asleep in bed and he'd beat my mother up. So I had this big like, bread knife thing. And I said to my mother, I'm going to go in there when he's asleep and kill him, you know what I mean? And she was going, oh, Bernard, don't, 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 you know, and she, she stopped me. But I would definitely would have done it. And I wasn't bothered because the way we lived, do you know what I mean? I wanted him gone. So eventually I just left when I was 16 and I went to the motorway, the M6 motorway. I said to myself, the first lorry or car what stops, that's where I'm going to live, right? And <laughs> just my look, I ended up in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I always remember I went in this job centre and the guy behind the desk said to me, uh, he's calling me Dick Whittington, right? He said, uh, he said, you're at the wrong end of the motorway, Dick Whittington. <laughs> he said, there's no work here. And I was, I was on the streets in Glasgow for about three months. I went to Dundee and these church people kind of took me in and I was working in this sort of bedsit land place, like a bit of an hotel type thing. And uh, went from there, really. I got into more trouble and more trouble. And there, there was a really sort of wily old stipendary magistrate in Wolverhampton called Robert Smythe. Right. And I knew I was going to go to prison. So I thought, I'll come up with this great idea. I'll go in the army recruiting office and I'll say I'm going to join. I'll get all the papers. And next time I'm in court, 
I say to Smythe, I'm joining the army. So I went to court with all the papers and I said, um, if, you know, he's gonna send me to prison. I said, yeah, but I'm gonna join the army. So he said, give me these papers. And he's like, looked at the papers, he's looked at me and he went, uh, he said, right, what we'll do, you're joining the army on January the 8th, say. He said, I'm gonna adjourn this case till January the 31st. And if you're, not in, if you're in the army on that date, right. fine. If you're not, come back here and bring your toothbrush. That's what right. he said. <laughs> So I, so I had a choice, the <laughs> join the army or go to jail and I joined the army. Have you ever been in jail, Bernie? Yeah, quite so, a few so, times. So if you compared the army to the jail, would you say it's similar or would you prefer one to the other? Similar type of people inhabit both places. But the army's much preferable because you've got your freedom and, right. you know, um, so what did you if you kill someone, you don't get into trouble. Right. <laughs> so did you, did you, did you have, uh, what, what, what part of the army did you join? Well, all my family, as I said, my mother and father were, were Irish and my father was a Republican, right. as most Irish people are. And in, in the north, in, in, on the border area in Ireland, that's where all my family are from and they're right. all staunch Republicans. And so when they heard I was going in the army, they weren't pleased. Right. So I joined an Irish regiment, right. the 5th Inniskillen Dragoon Guards, which is tanks, so I thought, well, hey, I'm saying. But as soon as I joined, the army had this brainwave to change the policy of not sending Irish regiments to Ireland. Right. And they said, we're going to send an Irish regiment, and the first Irish regiment to go will be your regiment. Right. So they sent the Inniskillen Dragoon Guards, which was full of Irish people, to Inniskillen in Fermanagh at the same time as Bobby Sands, who was the MP, went on hunger strike. Right. It was a, a recipe for disaster, honestly. Right. It was horrendous. But I quite enjoyed it, to be right. honest. How long was you in there for? In the army, three years. Wow. And when I left the army, I joined the UDR, the right. Ulster Defence Regiment. Because right. I moved to Northern Ireland when I right. left. But they kind of sussed out who I was pretty quickly. Right. And I got removed by the IUC, right. the police, and brought back to this country. And uh, did you... Uh, did you? How many people did you kill in the army? Or Nobody. <laughs> so you, you thought, oh, we'd be great. I can kill people and get away with it. But you didn't no, I didn't, like, think <laughs> I didn't. I didn't think that. That, that, that was a joke. But, no, I'm joking. But, 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 but I loved it because when they're training you and shouting at you and calling your names, everyone was going, this is terrible. I was used to it. It was like my, right, you know, right. half as bad as my dad. Do you know what I mean? Wow. And, and so that didn't really bother me. But, but I loved the, I loved the idea of, you know, when you went out the door, there was six of you or eight of you onto the streets, and it was like U6 against whatever they're going to throw at you, do you right. know what I mean? So there was a lot of camaraderie and a lot of, you know, some really bad things that happened. A guy I knew got blew up. It was quite funny, it went funny, but it was when I looked back, I couldn't remember his name. Right. And this mortar had gone off, and it hit him in the side and his face and his neck, and he, he was blue. He was badly injured. And the only thing I could find in the darkness for bandages was socks. Right. <laughs> so I was stuffing his wounds in his face. With, he had all socks sticking out of him. And when the helicopter comes to pick him up, we picked him up. And you've got a road, a ditch, and a hedge. Right. And the idea was to pass him over this hedge. But they got the, his clothing or bandages or something caught on the edge. Right. So when they picked him up and run with him, he was catapulted off the stretcher back right. over the edge back down on top of us <laughs> he really wasn't having a good day was he? no it was it, it was a, it was a bit of comedy of errors right. and, and and that's what the army was like right. i mean our regiment shot more of its own soldiers than it did 
right. of the enemy, do you know what I mean? Wow. In accidents. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, it's just mad. It, the whole thing's crazy. I mean, I've got a few friends who've, who've been in different um, armies, you know, yeah. regiments and stuff. And uh, I, I think to understand that sort of dark humour, you have to actually be in it because, yeah, to somebody else, you know, watching this, they'd be going, oh, there's nothing about that, the guy's hurt. But obviously when you're there and like you're saying, you're stuffing the socks in someone yeah, and you're yeah. trying to pull him over. You know, I think, I think lots of people, um, especially when you're in under stress, like somebody's just been blowing up and, and these terrible things are happening. And, you know, you, you sort of, it's, it's like a, a laugh out of sort of horror, you know what I mean? It's not a laugh as in But like, it's shock, yeah. because I, 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 rem, I could clearly remember this. We were in a thing called the QRF, Quick Reaction Force. If something happened, someone was shot or someone, they'd pick you up in a helicopter, they'd take you there and you'd be there like in minutes and you'd land and you'd land in the middle of chaos, do you know what I mean? And I always remember that night when we landed, I was thinking the police will be here in a minute, the right. fire up, the emergency services will be here in a minute. Right. What are we going to do? And it suddenly dawned on me, we were the fucking police, we right. were right. the emergency services. Right. What, what can we do, do you know? And the right. place is burning and total darkness and bullets going off from, because it was like a, a, a substation police station that had mortared, that bombed it. Right. So it's just really chaotic. And that, I mean, from, from your sort of three years in the army, what lessons would you say, you know, you, you, you took from it? Because like, everybody gets different things from things. I mean, did you think it give you any values or any qualities that you may not have had when you sort of joined? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. It, it, it just wises you up so much, you know what I mean? Right. You appreciate how fragile life is and how easy it can be took away and... Right. I mean, even now, we, I was in South America last week. We was in some dodgy places, in Peru especially, and you just got that awareness of, right. you know, that, that place, you can't explain it, Right. Don't go to that place there because right. it don't feel right, do you mean? I mean, that's one thing. I think uh, lots of sort of soldiers, uh, police enforcement, you know, dormant, yeah. security people, they kind of have that sixth sense and that awareness. And uh, I don't think you can learn it. I think you just have to be put in those situations to actually sort of get, activate it. And then I think whenever you're going around, it's sort of something sort of pings up, you know, subconsciously or... Well, when I left the army, I, I wounded somebody, went to prison, and then I wounded someone else and was going to go to prison. Right. I thought, oh, no, I just don't want to go back to prison. I'd only been there for four or five months. So I went on the run. I ended up in South Africa. Right. And me and this lad from Stratford in East London went to join their army to fight on the border with Namibia. Right. We thought it'd be good for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> and um, we went in this recruitment office in Pretoria. And the guy behind the desk, this major, he was nearly crying. He was going, I can't believe English people want to sign up when all the South Africans are, are on, doing a runner, you know, because right. they've, they've got a conscription there. And he said, show us your papers. He says, you've only got an holiday visa. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he said, we can't help you. He said, but there's a new thing started in Johannesburg. Right. This is a Cockney, funny enough, and a Rhodesian have started their own private police force. They're quite common in America now. Right, OK. Say like a street, they'll buy, they'll, they'll pay, it was five rand a month then, which is right. nothing. And you got a triangle with a phone number on it and you put it in your window. Because the police were useless. They would ring this number if anything happened and they'd guarantee armed people would be there within minutes. Right. So it's not a big thing in America now, but it, it start, they started it in South Africa. So we went and worked for them, for these people. And th that is the most scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Watch the Louis Theroux programme about 
policing in South Africa. Right. And he, he, he does a program with these people we work with. They go into townships, right. the most horrendous situations everywhere. You might have a thousand or 500 people in the township get round three of you. And they all want to kill you, do you know what I mean? Or it's really, really scary. I mean, we, we, there's a street in Johannesburg in Hillbrown and they called it the murder mile. There was people getting there murdered every, every other day of the week, you know what I mean? I remember somebody said to me that when you buy a car in South Africa, you can actually have the flames, flames yeah, you can, yeah. fitted. And I thought it was a joke. When I Googled it, I was like, yeah, this yeah. is actually a real thing. <laughs> Someone in the village might have a dream about another person and then they decide that they're a witch or something and they'll have them arrested, they put a tie around their neck, they call it a necklace, and then they burn them, you know, and that happens all the... It it's, was happening all the not, time. It's not somewhere I'm thinking of moving to. No, <laughs> no, no. Wow. Some of the township trouble we went to, there was a, they have shabines, which are illegal drinking dens. Right. And there was, like, this big fight in there, and there's a guy, when we got there, and he, he actually had a screwdriver in the top of his head, and he was walking around the road, you know, going, oh... <laughs> And the police come and just drove into him, like knocked him down, picked him up and just chucked him in the back and drove off. That's sort of how no, they Just operate. a normal, everyday thing. <laughs> you can't describe how, how violent it was then. Wow. Because Mandela was just on his way, you know, he wasn't out then. Right. But it was all the trouble leading up to it, do you know what right. I mean? It was really, really bad. And then, and then after that, I mean, how long was you, was you there? Well, I got put in prison out there. Right. This Rhodesian guy had a brainwave that he would then put these armed security people in nightclubs. And you had a single-barrel shotgun, um, a handgun, CS gas, handcuffs and a baton working on the door. And these Portuguese people came. And the manager of the club was a Greek. Right. And he was like a biker's club. And about half 11 at night, he decided that no-one was allowed in with jeans. And then he decided everyone in the club with jeans had to leave as well, and it right. caused murders. Ended up having a big fight with him, and I got stabbed in the chest by this Portuguese guy, and they went away. It wasn't bad. It, was never, it wasn't good, but it wasn't bad. And in the flat I lived in on the 13th floor, I was, went home, it was about five in the morning, I opened the lift doors, and they're all outside this woman's house, these Portuguese people. Right. So it's kicked off again. We used to take the weapons home with us, and I'd hit him with the... I'd held the barrel of the gun and hit him with the butt of the gun across right. the head. So he was out of the game, went to bed, and then about a week later they came to the club again and just all hell let loose. Police come and they arrested me because there was quite a few people injured. Right. And they discovered I was on a holiday visa. Right. <laughs> Not impressed. And John Foster Square, if you look it up in Hillbrow, right. is notorious. Right. Right. There's, Ten floors, I think, if I remember. And the, there's 11 floors, but only t- the lift only goes to the 10th. Right. And people used to get interviewed on the 11th floor, and it had it became notorious for people jumping through the window during interviews to escape. Wow. Allegedly. They were being thrown through the windows right. and murdered by the police. Wow. And uh, it, it had a horrendous name, and I spent a, a, a bit of time in there till they eventually took me to court, and they went to Deepcliff Prison. Right. Where they still execute people, 14 people a day or 12 a day. It's not, not a nice place. Eventually, I come up with this idea that if I got bail, right. I went into a travel agent 
and I said, because they took my passport and everything off yeah. me, I got bail. And I went into the travel agent and I said, I want a ticket to Europe. She went where? I said, anywhere, just the soonest possible. Right. So she got me on to Luxembourg or something the next day, right? So I then had the ticket and I drove to Pretoria, which is like three hour drive. Right. Went into a police station. I said, oh, my sister's married a South African. Um, she's gone back to England and I'll come over to help her pack and everything. And I've, my flight's tomorrow and I'm looking for my passport. I think I've packed my passport in her gear and it's been transported back to England. Well, what could I do? And I knew what he was going to say. And he went, you'll have to report it lost. Right. So he gave me an official letter saying I'd report it lost. It was all stamped and everything. What, like? Took it to the British Embassy. Said, I've lost my passport. And they said, we'll give you an emergency passport, um, which is an A4 piece of paper. Right. Which allows you one journey. My backside was eating through my trousers when I was at the airport <laughs> the next day, you know. And I sat on this plane and eventually it took off and I thought, thank God for that. But I'd gone to Africa because I was on the run from England right. for glassing the guy. Right. I was, was going to go to prison. Whilst I was in Africa, I'd met this girl from Basildon called Deborah, who was an hairdresser. Right. Um, we, didn't, we weren't in a relationship, but we kind of liked each other. Right. So... She said, I'll meet you at Dover, because I had to get the ferry um, once I landed in Europe. Right. So I've come up this ferry, it was November, right? Freezing cold. Right. Airy arse lorry drivers with carrier bags with cigarettes and whiskey and duty freeze. I had three suitcases, I was black as, it, as anything with the sunburn right, right. from Africa. And all I had was this A4 piece of paper. So I'm walking towards the Customs, I think, I know you're going to pull me. I know you're going to pull me. He went, where have you been? I showed him the passport. He went, Johannesburg, and you're coming from bleeding on the ferry over back to England. I said, yeah, he said, we need to check this out. Next thing, all the detectives there, right, you're right. nicked. I was then sent up to Stafford and sent to prison. And whilst I was in prison, I kept in touch with Deborah. Right. She used to come and see me, and a kind of prison relationship sort of began. And I said, I need an address for my parole. Right. And she said, um, well, use mine in Basildon. Right. So I used her, her address for my parole. And so I had to go there when I left. Right. And that's how I ended up in sunny Basildon, Essex. <laughs> the rest, I say, is history. Wow. So, so when you was in, 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 in uh, Basildon, um, when did you actually... Did you literally go there and you were looking for work and that's how you ended up being on the door? Well, the no. Well, I went to Basildon and when I left the army, I, I had an heavy goods licence, so I used to drive tipper lorries. Right. When I came out in Basildon, some Irish guys, they were building um, Canary Wharf at the time. Right. Some Irish guys gave me a job. I don't know if you know Canary Wharf well, but there was massive warehouses built and because no-one would go on to Canary Wharf because the rent was so high. Right. They said, you can have it, the warehouse six months rent-free. Right. So what these Irish guys were doing, they were hiring a warehouse, putting a machine in there, right. coming up the city, loading all the lorries up with soil and crap, rubbish, whatever, driving to the warehouse, reversing it, tipping it up, driving out, shutting the doors, and the machine was right. stacking it up in the warehouse. They were filling these huge warehouses up with muck, do you know what I mean? So everyone was earning a fortune. So I was on there, but... I was leaving at quarter to five in the morning and getting home at seven, eight at night. It was right. just slaughtering me, do you know what I mean? And then I read in the newspaper that this little boy from Cotswold, where I was brought up, had been in South Africa and he'd been hit by a car. He's only 10. 
And then his mother was trying to raise money for him, you know, with his usual type of sad stories. So I said, oh, I'll, I'll try and help you. So I wrote to everyone I could think of, Madonna, the Rolling Stones, everyone to donate things. And I wrote to the craze and asked them to donate things. So I'm in the garden one day and Deborah's gonna, there's a bloke on the phone, says it's Reggie Cray. So I thought it'd be some idiot from there in the pub, do you know <laughs> <laughs> So I went, all right, Reggie. He's gone, oh, no, and he's dead, he's dead effeminate the way he talks. Right. You know, he's not what you imagine. He said, oh, I've got your letter. And I thought, fucking hell, it might be him, you know. Right. He said, me and my brother want to help you. you know, so I thought, well, OK, fair enough. So they helped me raise a bit of money for this lad. And then uh, they had some going on, some Frida Craze thing or something. So he asked me if I'd help him. And, you, you know, right. you've got to, haven't you? You're obliged to because he's helped you. So then I got to know them too, which was a bit, turned out to be a bit traumatic, really. I was telling Reggie about my work situation. And he said, I've got a friend who runs a club in Basildon called Keith Bonzer. Right. It's Club Brackhills. He said, I'll give him a ring. Go and see him and he'll give you some door work. And that, that way you can spend more time with your family. So I went saying, so that's how I ended up, you know, working at Rackhills. Right, wow. Um, and... As in the film The Origins, oh, kind right. of. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you uh, never read the script, did you, Terry? No, of course I read it. <laughs> but I, I, I obviously didn't learn all your lines because I was obviously playing... Yeah, of course, Tucker, of course. When did you sort of first bump into, you know, the people that they refer to as the Essex boys? Well, I was at Rackhills from 87, and I, it's like any local club, really. You've got lads who earn their reputation in the playground and they think they're going to take it to their grave, do you know what I mean? Right. So there's local hooligans and local doormen. And the local doormen think, am I really going to get shitty with him for £40 a night? He knows where I live, he'll come round, give... So they let him get away with murder, you know. They'd come in the club, they'd bash someone up, they'd glass them, they'd get thrown out, and then they'd be back the next week. Do you know what I mean? Someone did say to me, I mean, I, I never went, but someone said it was a little bit like the Wild West for cows. It was unbelievable, honestly. Right. They were either trying to fuck each other or fight each other. That, <laughs> that, that was it, you know. Right. A guy went in there on his, on his, uh, his stag night, and he was getting married at the weekend, Stood on some some bloke's foot. That's disrespectful. Pushed him in the fire exit. He had 130 stitches with a Stanley knife. Cut all his back and cut him to pieces. Uh, I see horrendous things in there, and they were all getting away with it. So I really, really do like, and I don't mean it as disrespectful. But to this day, I think the world of him. The head doorman was a guy called Dave Venables. Right. You know, he's got the weightlifting record in the world. For the amount of really strong guy, right? But he just couldn't be bothered with taking him on. I said to him, look, one war's better than, you know, one every week. Just have one with them, get rid of them. Nah, it ain't worth the bother. They'll be round the house and ringing me up. And... So this one weekend, there was a lad, I won't name him, and he got thrown out this pub and one of the doormen hit him and broke his jaw. Right. So the next night, these two doormen who work with us are working on this pub. Guys come in the pub with a plumber's bag, sat down having a drink. Another guy's coming, he's sat over there. Another guy's sat there. There's about six of them. Suddenly the guy with the plumber's bag jumped up. He went, fucking do the bouncers. Open the bag and he's got machetes in there. He's handing out the machetes. Wow. So they've attacked the doorman. This guy, Ronnie, had all his hands and arms chopped up. The other doorman's run away, right? 
So we got called down there, and by this time they've all gone, but we know who they are. Right. So I said to David, we, we've got to go and sort this now. It's getting too serious. Leave it with me, leave it with me, right? So on the weekend after, one of the people involved has come in the club, right? right. And they've let him in. So the guy who run away, the doorman who run away, Tim, his name was. Right. I said to Tim, Ronnie got hurt because of you. It's down to you to confront this person, right? So he's gone in the toilets, this guy has. So we're waiting outside the toilet and he's come out and uh, Tim went, you got to leave. And this bloke, bit of a nutcase, you know what I mean? He went, the only person leaving here is fucking you and he's picked an ashtray up. Right. And I don't know who it was, right? But somebody squirted him right. with this noxious fluid right. and hit him over the head with a water jug and he's got bashed up and he's been permanently blinded in one eye, right, with right. this fluid and put out the door. And Dave at that stage has gone, I ain't been involved in this no more. And he's walked out. Right. So I was given the door, the door, right? So the company who owned Rackhills, European Leisure, would only accept invoices from legitimate companies, you know what I mean? Right. Which I didn't know. And I'd, I'd thought for a long time, you can't have local doormen as good, as bad as they were, dealing with these people. You need someone from out the area your reputation means nothing. Right. So you come to the door, don't know your attitude, you ain't coming in. Right. If you play up, you're out and you're out for good, that kind of thing, right? I was start, I'd started working at Epping Country Club. Right. And whilst I was there, I met Tony Tucker, because it was a kind of, it was on a Sunday, and it was the kind of place where all the doormen who worked Friday, Saturday, and right. all the bar staff used to go for their nights out, do you know what I mean? And I'd met him there, and he was a nice guy, and he was dead, he was dead quiet then. You know, a bit, a bit growled at a few people, but nice enough guy, do you know what I mean? And I told him the problem I had, and he went, well, I've got a legitimate company, we'll do it together. So, shook hands on it, and that, that's how we started, do you know what I mean? Right, okay. Because um, he, 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 sorry, he, he had, a lot of people think he had hundreds of doors, he didn't. He, he, he was friends with these Greeks who owned the Hollywoods chain. They had Hollywoods, Romford, they had Club UK in South London. It wasn't called Club UK at the time then. They had Hollywood Zip Switch. Right. And he, he, he was in with these people and he had them doors, you know. Right. So I thought that's brilliant because I'm gonna get people from Romford, I'll get people from Club UK and right. we can get all out, out of town doormen. And that's what we did and it worked brilliant. We got rid of all the all the heroes. And Mrs. Thatcher brought in the party. Law, didn't she? Right. To stop outside raves. Right. So all the promoters were looking for big venues to put on raves, and because all the trouble at Rackhills had essentially stopped, right. this promotions company, Perfect Virtue, which was Sue Woods and um, Gary Sutton, I remember Gary right. sadly died. They, they heard it was a change had been made, so they brought rave music into Rackles. They start. They started there. And when, was, when was that? Was that 89, 1990? No, early 90s. Oh, early 90s. Right, OK. Yeah, early 90s. So it, it went really well. But then, as you know, I don't think you remember me because I worked at the ministry and used to do, I think it was a Monday night or something with your... We did We did a couple of events yeah, at the ministry. I, I, remember, you, I remember you being there. Yeah. But, but um, it, everything works swimmingly at first, but then... They're taking 12 pills instead of one. Right. And then they're taking other things and then the moods change and then... 
it all it all goes to shit, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, obviously, um, you know, there's lots of uh, books been written about this, and there's obviously been films made about the Essex Boys. Uh, I mean, just to sort of dispel some myths. I mean, you know, I, I know you was obviously working, you know, in conjunction with Tony on the on 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 that club. But I mean, obviously in the films, he's openly saying, you know, that he was selling drugs, he was doing this, he was doing that. I mean, was 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 openly doing it in there or? Tucker wouldn't even work. <laughs> oh, really? He never stood on the door once. Oh, wait, so, all the time I knew him. Right, right, right. So, Do you know what I mean? Right. So, uh, as far as selling drugs, no way. Right. He's a very, you know, like most people who run right. crime things, he wouldn't get his hands dirty. Do you know what I mean? He would have people, um, uh, who'd done it for him, like the guy in Raquel's, he, he would speak to me. Right. I would speak to Tony. Tony would say to me this, that and the other. So he, he, he distanced himself from everybody. Do you right. know what I mean? So, so him, uh, obviously Pat Tate and, and Craig Rolfe. Well, they, things they... were fine. Right. Things were fine, right? Tucker had Rolfe because Rolfe was his driver. He was did all his dirty work. He sold gear for him, which which worked well for Craig as well. In fairness, because Craig sold drugs long before he met Tucker. Right. But he had a good outlet for him, like a, a, a almost um, risk free. Right. Do you know what I mean? And he was selling in bulk. Right. So it suited him. The friendship did, and it suited Tucker because he never had to get his hands dirty. So there's a big myth about Pat Tate, right? He came out of prison in, I think it was June or July, 94. Right. And he was in a cafe in South End with another guy. And Tucker and Rolf happened to go in the cafe and they knew the other guy, right. like a mutual friend. And they all got talking and obviously Pat's a big guy, Tony's a big guy and they've got a lot in common with training and steroids. So they got like an house on fire and they invited Tate out with them for a night out in South End that night. Right. And then they got on really well, so then they invited them for a night out at the country club. That's when that fool Ellis went with them. Right. That then, that, that was the nail in the coffin. So just, just to sum Pat Tate up, right? Pat came out June, July, 94. Right. He was shot in the November by Ellis. He went back to prison. So June, July, August, so he's out for six months right. at maximum. He's gone back to prison. He came out in October 95, Halloween night, funny enough. And then he was out for six weeks and got shot dead. So he was only on the scene for seven and a half months maximum. Wow. And got shot twice by two different people. Wow. You didn't have much luck then? <laughs> no, apparently no one likes me. No one's ever shot me. Right. You know? <laughs> and um, he got done twice in seven wow. months. You know, there's, there's, there's been, obviously, as we said earlier, all these sort of films made about uh, these characters. I mean, how... I mean, obviously, the films are, are, are fictionalised, but, I mean, if... if I, I know when we spoke earlier, you mentioned that you'd watched the first one and you watched, obviously, the fifth one, which, obviously, um, Bernard O'Mahony was, was obviously yes. one of the main characters. Yeah. Um, I look and, a lot like Vinnie people, so... No, absolutely. <laughs> but but, but when, 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 when you got the phone call from Andy and he said, you know, we want to do the Tony Tucker story, we want to, obviously, get you on board, we want to get something to play you, who did you think they was going to cast? Well, Andy contacted me and... I was immediately concerned because he was laughing in a, in a very good mood. Right. 
And I thought of all the times where I'd slagged his films off. <laughs> and I thought, this is payback time, right? He went, Bernie, you're not going to believe who I've got to play you in this film. Off here it comes. I thought he was going to say Barry off EastEnders, right? <laughs> but he went, no, 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 it's uh, Vinnie Jones. I thought, well, fair places, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you've watched, I know you haven't watched them all, but uh, how accurate would you say the characters are to the actual guys? I mean, would you say they were like that or, or not? Tate, Tate is spot on, to be fair. Yeah. He really, he, I mean, God rest his soul, you know, and he was um, a really troubled person, do you know right. what I mean? A lot of people think they they know him from right. these films, but when he went home, he'd sit there crying. He he, he, he couldn't cope with anything. He couldn't do it. He, he was just a, a mess. Do you know what I mean? Right. I mean, a lot of people don't know. I, think, I forget the guys now. They're Trigger or someone. But he used to get, go doing gear with homeless people in South End in an house. Do you know what I mean? Right. I'd say how far he'd fell. Do you know what I mean? But. Um, he, he was just a he was just a mess with drugs. Right. Um, so it's quite tragic, really. So there was a pack tape when he's out, and then there was a pack tape when he was home, and he he was just a he used to sit there crying, you know. What I mean? So I think Craig Fairbrass looks a bit like him as well, mm. which helps. Craig Rolfe, I think when when that first film was made, the guy whose book it was based on, to me, I might be wrong, in fairness to him. He was jealous of Rolf's relationship with Tucker. You're talking about Carlton Carlton, Carlton Lynch, Lynch, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't like to have a go at the bloke, you know what I mean? Right. He's got, he, he does well, he, he does a good enough job on his own, you know what I mean? He, 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 had, a, he had a problem with Rolf, I believe. Right. And so he, he had him portrayed as this muggy little run around. Right. Which Rolf really, he was and he wasn't, you know what I mean? He was no fool, Rolf, you know, and right. he cut people and. He, he, he was quite um, an evil person. Like he tried right. his brother. He said his brother was a grass, right. Brian. And so he invited him round his house for a drink, his own brother this is. And he drugged him with various drugs till his brother passed. He punched his brother in the face. His brother passed out. He woke up in a different house, his brother did. And he was on this bed and he couldn't move. He was paralysed. And Craig was laughing at him and... His, his brother thought he was going to die and he kept him there two days and... I never met any of these people and obviously when, when the, the, first, the first film, obviously, um, Julian Gilby wrote that film and um, did his research and obviously got feedback of different people on what these people were like. And I think it's very difficult <clears throat> um, to get them right because obviously when we did the Origins thing, you could say to Vinny, this is what I was like, this is what I did. So yeah, but, but, but we're all different people to different people, aren't we? Yeah. You know, if you ask my kids who am I, they're not going to say who you think I am, do you right. mean? So we're all different to different people. But but Rolf, that was Rolf's thing, drugging people. Let's say right. unfortunately killed Kevin Whitsker. He, he, he drugged loads of people, do you mean? And that was his thing. He was quite evil. Um, and Tony took her, I forget who played him, but um, um, <laughs> Tony <laughs> Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you've got to mention the wig, haven't you? I'm disappointed you're not wearing it today. To be well, honest. I was going to wear it for you, Bernie, but I just thought you've mate, been in so many times you probably got sick of it. Mate, maybe later, sweetheart. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, that's no, after no, the no, that's that, after that, the podcast. I put the wig on. Yeah, that, yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought it, it, it was him. I could buy that. Yeah, but. It, 
oh, I don't know, it's hard to describe Tuka. You know, he, he would never get his hands dirty. I've, ne I, I, I've never seen him get involved in trouble at the club or anything. Do you right. know what I mean? Right. And he was a bit of a... Well, I think they're all a bit of a cowards, really. Right. I mean, Nipparellis, they went to, to, to attack him. There was at least four of them there. I'd be ashamed to take my mother to threaten Stephen Ellis, never mind attacking, do you know what I mean? Right, right. You don't need three or four other big guys to take on Nipper Ellis, do you know what I mean? Right. When they robbed the guy of travellers' checks, there was eight of them, which they even failed to do. You know, they're always mob-handed, do you know what I mean? And right. I've always shied away from that. When the times I've been to prison, no-one's ever stood in the dock with me, ever. Right. Uh, I've done things, I don't regret what I've done. The, the two prison sentences for glassing people. I was in a pub on New Year's Eve on my own and this girl walked by crying and it was my brother's best friend's sister. I asked her what was wrong and she said, oh, this bloke said, I can't leave the pub. I've gone out with him, but he's threatening me. So I went over to him and said, you know, what the fuck are you doing? And he grabbed me by the throat. And so I'd done him in the neck. Went to prison for that, not a problem. And then another time I was having an argument with someone, someone come over and butted in. I said, please go away, and they wouldn't, so him. So I've never done anything in gang. I've been in gangs, you know what I mean? But I've never done anything significant in a gang. I'd right. rather do it myself, do you know what I mean? Right, right, right. And if, 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 if I can resolve it with someone, I'll resolve it with them without any bother. But um, I don't like all that 10 against one, and do you know what I mean? Oh, obviously, there was that famous uh, death at Raquel's, the Lear Betts. Well, there um, was three. Oh, really? Wow, because you only really... That, that was the yeah. focus, wasn't it? But there's three... Kevin people. Jones died at Club UK, which is, took right. his pills. Right. Lear at Raquel's, and Andrew Boises died at Club UK again, which wow. is, took his pills. The Lear Betts thing is... Um, the story's largely unknown. Right. Because people don't want to hear it, you know. She came into the club six weeks prior to uh, uh, that fateful night. And I was with Tucker, funny enough. Right. And we're sitting upstairs talking about some invoices or some nonsense. And the manager come and he said, can you get down to the bottom bar? There's a problem, right? So me and Tucker went down there and there's this girl and she's going, she stole my fucking purse. And the barmaid's going... She's underage, she's got to leave. So I said to the girl, have you got ID? And she went, no, she's got my purse. Because if you ain't got ID, you got to leave. She goes, well, my dad's a policeman, and he's going to cut. I said, listen, I've heard it all before. No offence, you know, but if you ain't got the ID, you've really, your, dad, right. your dad'll understand, you've got to go, you know what I mean? Oh, my dad's this one. So anyway, we put her out, went upstairs, and after work, we had a drink. And we're sitting there, and we heard all this who are downstairs, so I run downstairs and the barmaid's bashed this girl up. The girl's waited for her outside and the barmaid's bashed her up, right? Right. So I sort of broke them up and said to this girl, look after your mate, and she's walked off with her and the barmaid's gone the other way. And we thought that was it. So then Leah at the time was 17. I didn't know it was Leah Betts then, but right. it, that's who it was. When she was young, her mother and father had split up. Right. And she'd gone to live in Basildon with her mother and her boyfriend, and they'd brought her up, right? But when she was coming up to 18, her mother had died the year before or something, she died anyway, 
and she was due some bit of money, not a lot, you know what I mean? Right. The father, who's an ex-policeman, lived 25 miles from Rackhills, and he said, for your 18th birthday, you can have a party at my house, right? So right. She, she's at college, right? She's turning 18, all her friends are going to come. And he said, but you can't have any alcohol, and me and your stepmom are going to sit in the kitchen while the party's going. Imagine that when you're 18, you think, what the fuck, you know what I mean? That's the sort of thing I'd do, because I'd be worried they'd smash the house up. So, <laughs> so... She can't come in Rackhills because she's been barred. So what does she do? She decides that we'll get some pills. Because that was the thing in the 90s, do you know what I mean? I mean, every, I mean it was an epidemic. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was because obviously people were coming out of the recession and just wanted to escape, but, you know... It was it's just life. one of them cycles, yeah. isn't it? You know, they come and they go, different fads. Obviously, now we're in the keep fit sort of era, do you know what I mean, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so she thinks I can't go in Rack Hills with all my pals. I don't want to be embarrassed at my dad's ass, you know, right. everyone's sitting there playing hop, skip, jump or something. They want to get hammered, you know what I mean? Right. It's my 18th birthday. So she got this guy to go into Rack Hills to buy the pills. She never, she wasn't even in the club, right? So he's gone in there with his pal and they've got hold of their pills, gone to the party. She's took the pills at her dad's ass. People were smoking dope in the ass, right? Wow. Because the ambulance people said it when they got there. But the dad, an ex-policeman, wasn't aware of it. Right. So she took the pill, she's collapsed and gone into intensive care. She didn't die straight away. So I'm the head doorman, and this is some people need to understand. Doormen were licensed then. When the door police come to the door, you can't tell them to F off or... Right. You've got to converse with them, otherwise they withdraw your licence and you lose the door, right? right? So you've got to have a degree of conversation with them. So the police come, I'm the head doorman, they want to speak to right. me, right? We need one of these pills, because we think, the first thought she'd been poisoned. We need one of these pills as quickly as possible so it can be analysed and we might be able to help her. Right. The girl's 18, right? right. No, oh, no, didn't even think about it. No problem, I'll get you one, right? So I tried to get one and I couldn't get one because the guy who sold them... I was going to ask you, did you charge him for it or was it on you? No, no, no. <laughs> the, guy, the guy who owes it... Uh, sorry, the guy who had them right. done a run to Spain. Right. So right. the pills are gone. That weekend, unbelievable, right? That weekend, Leah Betts collapsed. Right. Pat Tate crashed Tucker's Porsche. Right. And the drugs they were then importing from Holland... Right. Right? Steel and Wombs got arrested on the beach... Right. That weekend. So there was chaos, right? Absolute chaos. Can I just ask you a quick question? But um, obviously, as, as a head doorman that's licensed, um, if the police obviously come up to the door and said to you, you know, we need to get one of these pills, if, if, if you'd have then gotten one, um, wouldn't that have then implicated you in it? Because obviously they'd have sort of said, well, you... Well, no, I didn't give a shit, right? There's a... Right. There's a a child dying in hospital. Right, right. I don't give a monkeys. Yeah. Right? No, no, that's I, I, that's I, me. I'm not going to go, oh, no, gov, gov. But I think what you did was the right thing. Yeah, what I'm absolutely. saying is I didn't know if that would have put you at risk because they'd have said, well, you must have known it was going on because... Well, I wouldn't care. Right. It's a child lying in hospital dying. Absolutely. Doing. So you had to do the right thing. Yeah, forget all this gangster crap. The child's lying there. You, you, you do what you can, you know what I mean? Finish. Absolutely. So that, that, that's the way I am. So there's a whole load of stuff going on. The Rackhills was a nightmare, right? You'd go into the club after she'd collapsed and you'd get people come up to you in raincoats and 
Uh, can you get me any pills? Can you get me reporters and right. the media? It took us trying to run this importation, drug importation. You're standing on the door. Across the road, you had Sky News, right. vans, you know, the cameras. Right, right, right. All, all these TV, ITV all filming. You're coming up to your microphones. He went, then you've got to get rid of these people. You've got to get rid of them. I said, how the fuck am I going to get rid of them? <laughs> he went, I don't care how you get rid of them. You've got to get rid of them, right? Because he's got, invested all this money in this importation. That's going wrong. Right. Tate's out of his head, crashing his car and getting drunk, right? So he's thinking, you've got to get rid of it. So I went home, and then what, this night, this guy's rung me, right? He went, uh, you don't know me. I said, what, what do you want? He said, it's, I've heard you're after me. I said, well, I assure you I'm not. I said, I don't even know who you are. He said, I've been nicked, and I'm on bail for the Leah Betts thing, supplying her. I'm a friend, right? So I said, I don't know why you're ringing me, mate. He said, well, I've heard you're after me. Right. So I said, you've heard wrong. So the next day, I told Tucker, right, he went, he's being nicked. You're not grassing him, he's being nicked. We need to put him in the... Because the, paper, the papers weren't aware of who he was or anything. Right. So they're still investigating around Rackhills. Right. Tucker wants him to go away. So he goes, I don't care how you do it, but we want him in a newspaper and then the problem will go away. I went, all right, fair enough. So I've hung this kid up. I said, meet me. Bang this journalist. I said, the guy who's on bail for the bets thing is going to meet us. Right. They've turned up, photographed him, bang, he's in the news of the world, took his rubbing his hands, the problem's going away. The problem's only just starting, do you know what I mean? Would you, would you say that that weekend with those three events, do you think that was the beginning of the end? That 100%. Right. One million percent. I could see it all falling down around me, do you know what I mean? Right. I'd been nicked with a gun. I got caught with a gun. And I was going to lose my licence in the December anyway. Right. So I weren't that fussed, but Tucker was just... He physically changed, honestly. His, his face physically changed. He was under that much stress. And um, having Tate as your right-hand man don't help, do you know what I mean? Because obviously, you know, I've read the papers regularly, and uh, so I didn't know these people, but obviously you read about this girl dying on... And, and the way it's portrayed in the press was that Obviously, you know, she went in the club, bought a pill, took a pill yeah, and yeah. died, you know, so she died, you know, in the club, basically, or when she got home or whatever. So, and I'm doing this from memory, so I could have... Yeah, that's what everyone around. thinks, yeah. um, Did the club sort of get shut down after that, or did it remain open? It, it remained open for a little while. Right. The management were denying all knowledge of everything, right? Paul Betts, the father, went on TV and said I was a bastard, and he blamed me, right? Right. Said it was my fault because I, I they they said you must know what was go, going on in there, and I went well, yeah, of course I did. Right? I said, but a rave, right? You've got the management producing flyers with smiley faces on. They're not selling alcohol. They're only selling water. You trying to tell me they don't know what's going on, and you trying to tell me the police didn't know what was going on? Everyone. You know, a thousand people bursting out into the street with fucking eyes like saucers. I said, you're trying to tell me the police didn't know what was going on. I said, we all knew what was going on, but that's the way. So then he, he, he jumped on me, didn't he? Saying it was my fault, which I thought was a bit rich. And I asked for him to do a live thing on TV where we debated it. Right. Because people were smoking cannabis in, cannabis in his house. Right. And he couldn't smell it. Wow. 
although he's an ex-policeman. Right. It was just a tragic. It was a tragedy. Right? I don't think it was anyone's fault. Right. She was doing what millions of kids were doing. Right. And it was just a horrible, sad, tragic event. It's really. bad. I, th I think it's also bad luck. I mean, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, uh, I remember when the rave scene first kicked off in the late '80s, and at the time I was sort of boxing. I was running half marathons. I was. You know, I'd, I'd go to a club and have a drink, but, you know, I was completely anti-drugs. And when, when I saw the um, papers, it was like, you know, people taking ease and dying on ease. And, you know, and, and you know, to somebody who'd never been out, you, you assume if you took one, you'd die. So I think they did a good job in putting people off. But then I think lots of people were taking them, like millions of people. A friend took them. Exactly the same. And then, and then I think as, the, as you've got... For everyone who said, oh, no, it's dangerous, everyone was going, well, I've taken, I'm all right. Mm. And, 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 I mean, look, there's, there's, there's been lots of deaths from alcohol, smoking, drinking, you know, over the years. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate when, when anybody does lose their life. But... There is a bit of a backstory to them particular pills. The, this lad was working away in Rack Hills and doing reasonably well selling drugs. And Club UK got raided on TV. It was like televised raid. Right. Uh, sorry, before that, the lad was doing well and the lads in Club UK who took her had got nicked right, from right. Bristol. So he needed new dealers. Right. So he got the guy from Rackhills to go into Club UK with his dealers, right? Right. And then there was a televised raid in the October and they burst in there with TV cameras, police. So all the dealers were just chucking everything on the floor. Right. The guy who was at Raquel's Club UK, who worked for Tucker, was suddenly in a lot of debt to Tucker, right? Right. And he went on his toes. And Tucker said to me, find him and bring him to me house and we'll have it, we'll sort it out, right? So I did. After the raid, he was never, ever going to make the money he'd promised Tucker in rent. Right. So he's getting deeper and deeper in debt, right? So Tucker went, I've got these pills. I think it was a 500 or a 1,000. He said, everyone who takes them says they get really bad headaches. Right. He said, but sell them in Rack Hills and that'll help reduce your debt. Right. He give them a, a reduced rate. And they're the pills what she, she took right. on. Right, so they were obviously bad. They were obviously yeah. bad, yeah. I suppose that's the problem with drugs, isn't it? When, you, when you're buying anything like that, you, you know, there's no... Well, criminals make them, but, you know? <laughs> but, 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 but what I'm saying is, like, you know, in, in, uh, in Amsterdam, a friend of mine went to a rave in Amsterdam and he said that they actually had testing stations. Testing stations, Where yeah. they could test whether it was okay or not. And I mean, obviously that is basically condoning, yeah, you can take drugs, but obviously if they'd have had something like that there, and obviously everyone knew what was going on. So like you said, the authorities, you know, you know like you said, if you've got 20,000 people in the field dancing, yeah, for 20 hours or whatever, they're obviously doing something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. That would have, that would have, uh, but then I suppose, you know, nobody could be seen to condone it. But then after, after all these events happened, when, when did you sort of, uh, the, the club obviously then, after that raid at Club UK, when did Raquel's actually shut the door? Leah died about a week after she collapsed, roughly. Right. You know, I was saddened, I genuinely was. I felt, but a girl, anyone, any human being would be, it was awful. Seeing her, her father and her stepmother um, in bits like that on telly, you know, who, who wouldn't? Be moved, and I lived right by her at the time. Right. I'd moved out of Basildon, I was living near her. I went to work one night, and um, I just said to my mate Gavin, the doorman, I said, I've had enough of this shit, do you know what I mean? So I went upstairs and said to uh, the manager, I'm leaving. 
And apparently he danced after I'd left. <laughs> <laughs> and I just walked out. Right. And that was it. And then why, took why, us... would he, why would he have danced? I mean, it's just... Uh, because I, he was Welsh, right? And... Oh, right. I bet you give him some stick. Well, we used to tell him he wasn't allowed out of the office. <laughs> he tried to he, he tried to scrap the rave nights and he right. put on Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, right? And I'll come into work and there was these black ladies sitting in the office. And I thought, I, no disrespect, I genuinely thought they were the cleaners, do you know what I mean? Right. And I went to him, can you get out of the office while I talk to him? And he's going, this is Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. I'm fucking right. Right. So... He was trying to turn it round, but it was never going to work. Do you know what I mean? Do you, I suppose really when it's been tainted with something as tragic as that. No, no, this is before. He oh, wanted right. to get rid of the raves. Oh, right, right. So right, when right. he first come, I wouldn't let him leave the office because he was always right. meddling. And so he was, he was probably happy, like, because... because I was having he, a move, because he, yeah, he, he was in charge again, yeah. He was right, the actual right. manager again, yeah. But then they shut it straight after and renamed it Europa or something. But it only lasted a couple of weeks. It's... And, and then... And then Obviously, after that period, what happened with you and sort of Tucker and stuff? This is part of why I left, really. No, after work, I went to Southend, to uh, a club in Southend, Adley, where we used to go, where you filmed Origins, right. funny enough, to that club or the one next up or whatever. Right. And he was there with Tatey and all that. So uh, he went, I want a word of you. I went, oh, yeah, what's this about? And he went, oh, Donna, this is like his 15-year-old girlfriend. He said... Um, They've raided Pat's flat where she was living and the phantom speed. One of the doormans grassed him up. And then he goes, no, they ain't. Right. He goes, they have, I've got it. I said, Tony, I don't care what you say. No one's grassed her up, right? She's a fucking, she's a walking advert for, for what, what they do. Right. So they've raided Pat's flat and they found the gear. And he's going, well, a doorman's told me. I goes, well, who's the doorman? He's going, listen, it doesn't matter. I've been, to, I said, well, I tell you what, I mean, you go to his house tomorrow, right? right? And you tell him to tell me that one of the doormans grassed him up. And let's see what he says. He went, right then. And then I walked away and I thought, do, do I fucking need this shit? Do you know what I mean? Right. It's, it's just getting ridiculous. They're all turning on each other. Do you know what I mean? Right. Then when I went to work the next night, I thought, I can't be doing this. He never, he never contacted me the next day. Right. And I just thought, I can't be doing this. And just walked out, do you know what I mean? But, so I suppose, really, when you left Raquel's, and uh, you, you were just sort of part of company and probably sewage. Well, no, he, was, he rang me up and he went, you can't leave. I said, well, I've left. He said, you can't. And he, he got, oh, see, oh, fucking, you're getting nutted. That was their favourite saying. You're getting nutted. I went, well, because I packed my job in. Think about it. You know what I mean? Right. I said, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm going anyway in December. It's like November now. What's the problem? Right. You can't do that. You can't. People are talking. That's what he kept saying. People, I said, I don't care what fucking people are talking. So we sort of separated a bit of an argument. And then Tate and Rolf, when in Raquel was looking for me, I don't know why, because I knew where I lived. Right. And they had me phone number. They never rolled me up. It's all show. That right. world's all show. Do you know what I mean? We're looking for Bernie. And then, as I said, a few weeks later, they got shot. You know what I mean? Right. But I never moved. I never... Right. Switched my phone up and never changed my number. They never rang me. You haven't mentioned, um, obviously, Carmen Leach at all. I know you and him have, have never seen uh, eye to eye. Um, but, but I mean, I was, I was going to ask you. I mean, you know, obviously, he, he, he's always sort of maintained that he was very close to him and he was, yeah, really good friendly with him. And, you know, obviously, you wasn't really involved and blah, blah. And obviously, from what you've said, you was in the centre of it. I, I honestly don't know Carlton Leach. Right? I've, right. I've met him maybe six times. Okay. And only in this context where I've gone in a club and he's either on the door or 
he's with Tucker and Tucker will go, all right, Bernie, this is Carlton, Carlton, this is Bernie. Right. And another time it was Dave Dunn and we've exchanged, but I've never sat down and had a conversation with him. I've never had any form of conversation with him. Right. It's a hello, goodbye, how are you, blah, 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 blah. That's it, right? Why do you think he's got so upset, though? Because obviously, well, against you personally, because I know you've had that sort of, a bit of a sort of social I media can't chat. read his mind, but I, I think he's a very jealous person. He, he wants Tucker to be his, do you know what right. I mean? He's my friend, he's not your friend. Right, <laughs> it's right. sad, isn't it? But, you know, that's, a, that's what I think, I don't know, but it's right. the only thing I can think of, because right. I've never done anything to him, but he's, you know, he's not so bad now, he probably will be when he is this, but, right. you know, for about two years, he, he drove me and my children and my wife and family absolutely insane. It was like a, a daily thing, constantly, do you know what I mean? Right. Talking about my kids, me, 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 me autistic kids, he called them, uh, my kids are quite clever, actually. And, you know, on about my wife, on about my son, on about all these things. Even my son's then-girlfriend was adopting a child whose mother was a, an heroin addict. So she was going to take care of the child. And even that nearly got stopped because the authorities were aware that he was abusing her on the internet. Wow. And they were concerned that it would affect the thing. But he, he, don't, he, he obviously didn't think of them things when he was saying them. And this, a lot of these people on the internet don't understand. Right. It's like when most people say to me, why don't you ignore them? Well, if I ignore them, they say I killed Leah Betts. They say I was somehow set to a and roll for Imagine if I said nothing, you know, it'd be, it'd be ridiculous. And my right. kids go into a school and people say, your dad's a murderer, your dad... The drug dealer, your dad's killed. Right. That ain't right, you know what I mean? Right. I'm, I'm ne they'll never shut me up. And it, it, it got so ridiculous in the end that I started legal proceedings against Leach to have him injuncted, to have him shut up, right? Right. And again, I never s said anything about it, but he made a big deal of it in the internet. He's grassed me up, he's done... You know, if you're going to go into grassing up and the ethics, the criminal ethics, which is a load of nonsense anyway, you know, one, you don't abuse kids and women, so which you'd broke, and you don't involve people's families, which you'd broke. So the rules were gone by the time right. I instigate these proceedings. And he's going, I'll fight him anywhere, I'll do this anywhere, I'll do that. The, the day I issued proceedings, he went to the doctors, right, and got a medical note and said he can't travel to Lincoln to the court, guys, because he's got a bad leg, right? So he, he wouldn't come and face us in the court. And then his case against me was just ridiculous. He claimed that I'd had a bad reputation as an informant since the 1960s, right? I thought I was only born in 1960. Right. And he actually named a guy called Morris O'Mahony as me. Because right. in the East End, it had O'Mahony's a grass on this railway bridge. And right. he was saying that was me. Right. But it was a guy called Morris O'Mahony who died in about... You know, probably right. when I was three or something, do you know right. what I mean? And he, he, he didn't... All his facts were wrong. Do you know, do you know something, though? I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because, um, obviously, people don't... You know, they, they, when, when, when people say things um, online and, and, and other people join in, you know, obviously... Yeah, yeah. You, and like you said, you've kept a dignified silence and then obviously you've said your bit, but then you get people going, well, why would he say it? It's got to be right, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. 
Um, and, you know, I think, I think it's good to hear your side of the story. Well, they threatened to dig my dead wife up. My wife died when she was 20. We got married. Right. She was 26. Five months later, Alfie's anything, sitting watching telly like me and you on there. And she hadn't been to work because she felt a bit unwell. Right. And she, gets, she went, Bernie, I love you. I thought, oh, God, she wants kids. Do you know what I mean? Right. And she's going, I really love you. I thought, oh, fuck, you know, I'm in real trouble here. And then she went, uh, and died. She, she had flu and she, had, she attacked right. her. She was five months after we'd been married. I buried her in a wedding dress. And then Terrible. on the internet, they're saying they're going to dig her up. Do you oh, know what I mean? That's fucking it's, disgusting. It <laughs> it's disgusting. just, they don't realise that if you could get them in that moment when you've ready yeah. what, what, what you would do to them, they don't realise it. it. It's just poison there, that internet is. But anyway, with, with Leach, he wanted his big day in court and he was going to show me what's what. I had to serve the papers on him on January the 6th, say, I can't remember the exact date. But I was ordered to do so over the Christmas period. But because of COVID and everything, to serve papers, I was representing myself. Right. You have to go to the court and they have to be sealed. They have to have a little stamp on it. Right. Then you can serve them. But I handed the papers in on time at the court, but they said, because of the backlog, because of COVID and Christmas, you ain't going to get them back in time. Right. So I went, well, what am I going to do? They went, I said, well, I'll have to email his solicitor all the paperwork and explain to him Right. Now, I can't give you a sealed copy until I get it from the court. So I did that, and I asked him to acknowledge he'd received them, which he did, and then, say, January the 6th was a cut-off date. Right. On January the 6th, he went to the court, and he said he hasn't served me with a sealed copy, and they had it thrown out. Right. So I didn't lose any court case. Right. They got out of the court case using a technicality. Right, got it. Because they'd have got smashed in the court. They didn't have a leg to stand on. Yeah. Everything in that paperwork was true and everything in his paperwork was laughable. You know, that's how that ended. Right. But I'm happy to, to restart it if they want to restart right. abusing my family, you know. Right. Well, I mean, there's no, 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 no cause for it, really. I mean, it should just be just, you know, move well, on. Well, if, he's got a, if yeah. someone's got a genuine problem with you, you right. ring them up and you say, look, I ain't happy what you've said there. And I go, well, I'm sorry. If you're wrong, you apologise. And if you go, well, actually, it's true. You say, well, actually, it's true. And you take it from there, didn't you? Yeah. You didn't sit on the internet, you know, on your sperm-stained keyboard, bashing away all night. Do you know what I mean? Right. You, you, you've obviously become well-known, not just as, you know, around that, that area and being, you know, one of the Essex boys or being around the Essex boys, whatever you want to say it. But obviously, when, when the actual murders happened... Um, obviously, you know, the headlines were... The, the, the media come up with the Essex boys' moniker, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you who actually did. Right. Um, it, Jeff Pope, right. who wrote the Essex boys' film. Right, that was him. He, he, right. He's guilty of that, yeah. Right, OK. I didn't know, because I remember seeing... Uh, I, I remember it vividly. There was, like, the Range Rover picture. Uh -huh. It was on the front page of every paper, and I'm pretty sure it said Essex boys murdered or, or something like that, and... I don't mean he come till Jeff made that film. Really? Because oh, okay. maybe I'm... My, my first book was called So This Is Ecstasy with a question mark. Right. And it was obviously about Leah Betts. Never mentioned the murders, that book right. didn't. And then publishers, being publishers, right. when the Essex Boy movie was coming out, right. they went, Bernie, we're going to change the cover of your book, we're going right. to rename it, right. Right. and we're going to launch it again on the back of the film. Right? Write a few more paragraphs, right? right? That's what they do, you know. That's that, but that is, a, that is a great question I want to ask you, Bernie. You know, so, 
you've obviously been through this like crazy. I mean, you, you have had like a, a, a crazy life, uh-huh. um, and you, you've ended up all over the world doing these things, and obviously you've ended up in Essex, and then been part of this whole kind of story, which has become like. I mean, you know, it's if you speak to anybody, you know, it seems that in this country, the craze and the Essex boys were like the biggest criminals ever, you know. And uh, it's actually quite funny because, um, uh, you know, I'm sure at the time you probably would never, if I'd have said to you um, when this was happening, oh, Bernie, you know, there's going to be 20 films and 50 books and this is going to become like, one. it's just going to be going Mm -hmm. on and on in 20 years' time, you'd probably gone, you know, you wouldn't have seen it. About what, yeah. Um, So it's funny how it's, it's gone, but... What 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 point did you actually get the inspiration to become a writer? Because obviously you've written some great books. I was writing when I was at Rack Hills. I've always written. Right, okay. Because because I left home when I was sixteen. I was in prison. I was in the in the army, and so I always wrote home to my mother, and right. so I'd always express myself by writing. You know, you then daft letters to the thing. I used to write things about politics, and you know, when I was seventeen, I used to write about stuff like that and get it published in the newspapers. So I've always enjoyed writing, so your first it wasn't book, new to me. But your first book that got published was that one, the... So This Is Ecstasy, yeah. yeah. And how many books have you written today? About 20, I think. Amazing. And which one's been the, the bestseller? Would it, would it have been the... Salford. Oh, Salford. Right, yeah, okay. by far. And that was the... Story. Paul Massey. Paul Massey, okay. Before we go on to that, obviously when we were talking about um, that, that book, and then you did do a book called Bonded by Blood, and obviously we... Yeah, we, yeah. we, we Obviously, you did a film together, um, and, and then you did a... Uh, did you have a book called Essex Boys as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that was the, the publisher. Right. I don't want to keep going on a bit, but this another one of Carlton's beefs. He said that they were the Essex Boys. Can you imagine Tony and me sitting around saying, what should we call our gang? We'll call it the Essex Boys. I've never... That, the, the title of the book was Essex Boys, right? right? Nowhere else in the book does it mention Essex Boys. Right. It's just the title right. to coincide with the film. It's a good name, though. I know it is, but Muscle, I think he mentions it eight or 16 times, that he's the Essex voice. Right. But, but you, if you're a writer, right, you've got to have a tag. You know, right. it's like the craze, you know, the firm. And, right. You know, you, you, you can't keep saying, me, Tony, Pat, Craig, but, but went to the shops. Right. So you have a collective name, do you know what I mean? Right. And so that, that, that worked well, so... And then I'm, it's I, stuck, do you and know? I, I remember, um, you know, you had the the website. Um, was it? It was the Essex Boys website as well, was it? Yeah. Well, that that, that came about because after the trial where Wombs and Steele were convicted, John Wombs came to me and said, "Look, I'm trying to get my brother out. You know all the characters, and we need to speak to him. Will you help? Will you help us?" So I thought Tucker was threatening to shoot me, and God knows what. Jack's done me a favour. They do you a favour, you've got to do them a favour. So me and John started working together and we did really well at first, you know. We were getting witnesses to say things they shouldn't have said and or didn't happen. And I went to Southampton to meet this supergrass who alleged a load of things about Darren Nichols and right. it got him an, an appeal. So we were doing well, but eventually it, it died out. Right. And people would say to me, you said they were innocent, right? I, didn't, I knew they were guilty from day one, and me and John used to talk openly about them being guilty. Right. It was only been in public we said they were innocent. But, you know, you said they were innocent, now you're saying they're guilty. You're saying, listen, 
you don't marry the first girl you meet, you know what I mean? Right. You, you get in a relationship with her, you get to know her, and after five weeks, five years, 15 years, it's not working, you know, so it ends, right? right. Relationships don't last forever, right. generally. You know, you have shit on your shoe, you wipe it off, didn't you? You didn't leave it on there. So my relationship with John ended when we couldn't go any further. Right. And it, it's been proven since me right. and him fell out, they ain't done nothing. Right. They ain't gonna do nothing because right. they're guilty, you know what I mean? Everybody's always been like, you know, who was behind it, who did it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and obviously there was recently a, a documentary on uh, A on very Sky. bad documentary. Um, and, and, they, and, they, and they basically were saying that they've done new evidence and, you know, they could triangulate them nearby, but they couldn't put them at the spot and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I mean, do, do you? I mean, do, you know, do, do, did they do it or? Hundred percent, they did. Right. Okay. So, that, so, yeah. so there's no shadow of a doubt. No shadow. Of I mean, a what, doubt. I, what I don't get is, right? You know, if you're, I mean, because is he? Did, did he do twenty years or thirty years? I mean, it's been been a long. Twenty three, I think. Jack I mean, Lewis. you'd think after 2015, and you couldn't do it anymore. At that point, you'd have just gone, yeah, it was me, and get out. That's what you so thought. I don't, yeah. I don't know why why they kept. That's that. what you'd have thought, but. Some people convince themselves, don't they? And other people have just lost causes, you know what I mean? And, and you've also got to remember all their witnesses. Right. Every one of their witnesses was a family member or a relative. Right, OK. Right? So maybe they think, if I put my hands up and go, all right, we, we're guilty, they're throwing them under the bus, you know what I mean? Right. Because they, they all give evidence. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, again, you know... It's always been a fascination for these sort of... It's a load of right. rubbish. Right. There's no evidence. There's only the word of a super... No, there's not. Right. There's shitloads of evidence, right? I'll just... I'll, I'll, I'll do it the other way around, right? Steele's alibi, right. right, is that he went to pick a trailer up from Bolton, which is near the halfway house in right. Essex. He took it home... Then some people come to visit him to buy his house and he spent the evening with them people. Easy enough alibi, right? So then the police look into it, right? His phone is picked up at Rettendon. Right. Right, off the transmitters. He's going, oh yeah, that's because I was at Bolton. Well, that, that transmitter doesn't come at Bolton. Right. And his wife said, oh, I was with him when he to pick the trail up. So they go to his wife, right, we'll give evidence because no, I ain't, I'm not well, I can't do it, right? Like your wife would do, you know what I mean? Right. So then they get the three people who he's meant to be in the house with, or two people he's meant to be in the house with, in the witness box, and they went, what day did you go around to look at the house? Right. Um, oh, I remember it really well. Well, when was it? It was um, uh, December the 6th. Are you sure it was that day? Oh, not really. Well, right. why did you say it was December 6th? Because the solicitor told me to say that. Right. You know what I mean? And his case just went... Right. Jack Wombs, um, where, where, where were you? I was picking his car up right. from the car park right. near the murder scene. Right. Well, who told you to pick the car up? Well, his mate come in the yard at two o'clock and asked me to do it. Right. So he's travelled 60 miles from his house to your yard to ask you to pick up a car when he's got your phone number, but you can't say he's phoned you because there'd be phone records. Right. So you've got to say he's driven. Right, so he's gone to you, I'd ask you to put the car up, you've gone, yeah, no problem. You've dragged a trailer from Suffolk right. on a dark night when it's snowing right. to pick someone's car up 
and take it back to Essex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the guy who you say come to the yard at two o'clock, right. he was at Heathrow Airport at two o'clock. Right. We've, he, he made a phone call. We've, we've got we've got phone evidence. Right. He was in the car with Nichols who were working at somebody on Thames. Right. Explain that. Uh, you know what I mean? It, 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 I could go on forever. But it, it, the yeah, evidence of the them is massive. It's right, not okay. super gas evidence. Right, okay. Well, I've, I mean, that's obviously that's, the narrative. That's, but these are newspapers, a, right? Newspapers, it's easy for the newspaper to say there's a miscarriage of justice and get a double-page spread about how corrupt the police are and how dodgy things are because they can't be sued. The police aren't going to sue them. But how many newspapers, I can only think of two, well, it's the same newspaper, the Daily Mail, have ever gone, that person who's got away with that murder's guilty. They did it with the Stephen Lawrence thing, right. the Daily Mail, and they did it with the Taylor sisters, which I was involved right. with. And that's the only two times I've ever known them say, well, the guilty's got off. Do you know right, what I mean? Because right. they'll get right. sued to... Right. So the, the police are always the easy target. Right. That's why miscarriages of justice are only the innocents. Right. Not the guilty getting off, it's right. the innocents. You know what I mean? Right, right. That's what they do. It's an easy... Yeah. It's an easy story, isn't it? And your, and your, your, your book that you said has been your, your best-selling book, uh, the Paul Massey book. I haven't actually read it yet. Yeah. But, um, obviously, I'll great be, film. I think everybody knows. Yeah. Uh-huh. Everybody knows uh, who he was, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I'd like to read that book actually. It is a fascinating story, and he was a nice guy. Do you know what I mean? I got a lot of help with that book, which Salford's a very, 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 very strange place in regard to the media. They're a bit like scarcers. They don't talk to the media. They don't engage with journalists. So I was really fortunate that one of them comes for me, one of the main people, and said, look, we want this to be the true story. You know, will you do it? I went, yeah, no problem. So Paul's family, I knew Paul, I knew his wife. All the family were on board. But then greed crept in, do you know what I mean? Right. Why are you get writing a book and we're not making no money and all the usual old stuff. So well, then they started I think, this... I think you, you should also... You know, let people know that are listening and watching this podcast. People assume that because you've written a book that you know you make millions of pounds oh. out of it. So obviously, you know, they they, they 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 probably think you know you've made millions of pounds out of it. But the reality is, you probably made a few thousand out of it. You know, and that's. But people don't, you know, see that. There's no money in books. I, I write mine properly, right? I, I've never written a book in under a year ever. Right. I'll go to the places to look at the places. I'll go and meet the people, I don't do nothing on the phone, do you know what I mean? I was in Spain last year, speaking to someone about a story. I'll go wherever to get it right, do you know what I mean? It's all in the detail, isn't it? I was going to Salford and I interviewed them all on tape, not because I don't trust them, but because I can't do shorthand, so I always say, we'll get it on tape, do you know what I mean? And then they all turned funny. I'll tell you why they turned funny. there was two gangs, there was the A-team and the anti-A-team. The anti-A-team shot Paul, right? Right. And the A-team were Paul's buddies. Right. So as I said, I always like to tell the full story. So I started speaking to the anti-A-team. And the family went, what are you talking to them for? I went, well... You need both sides. They're, they're, you got to have both sides of the story. No, no, anyway, they fell out with me over it. So then they started the internet campaign he stole our book, he's ripped us off, he's this, he's that. Paul Ferris jumped on board, he's gonna do this, gonna do that. Writing poems about me, God knows what else he does. 
And um, Paul's brother John got in touch with a person who I'm close to in the face of family member as well and said, what's this Bernie saying about my mother? He goes, what are you talking about? He said, I'm not going to repeat what they said, but it was a really serious allegation about Paul's mother, God rest her soul. And I said, there's no way on God's earth I'd write that in a book. Even if it's not true, but if it was, there's no way I would. One of the family had rung up Paul's wife and pretended to read an extract from my book saying, have you seen what he's written? Right. And it really upset his wife and it really upset his brother. So when I interviewed the family, they said some absolutely horrendous things about Paul's wife, which again, I won't repeat, and I don't believe they're true. So I was in a bit of a dilemma. I thought, I don't want people thinking I've said that about his mother, God rest his soul, right? But I don't want to prove it's nonsense by revealing what they've said about his wife, do you mean? So her brother, Paul's wife's brother, was a, f a friend of mine, he's a friend of mine. I said, listen, Stephen, I said, I I'll give you the tape and I'll let you listen to it. And if you think your sister can listen to that, it's, it's on your head. But I'd, re I'd rather let them carry on abusing me right. than put the woman through that, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the sister went, no, no, I want to hear it, I want to hear it. So she listened to it. They went their separate ways, that part of the family and that part of the family, and the internet abuse stopped immediately. But if they want to restart it, I will happily upload, now the mother's, the wife's heard it, I will happily upload the recordings to the internet, which I don't think they would want in a million years. Because right. it was so disgusting what they said. It's tough, your, your, your job, Ben, isn't it? Because obviously you're, you're obviously... It's difficult. To, to trying to, you know, earn a living as a writer and tell these stories that are fascinating. And uh, obviously, you know, when you do it, you, I suppose you can't keep everyone happy. It's like Paul. Paul Ferris, I got on all right with him at first when I met him and we'd done a, pro done a TV programme with him and he sat there and he told about the murder of his friends. Well, fine, you know what I mean? And then he, he, he alleged that this guy had set him up. And so for the next programme, I thought, right, we've got to get that guy on and let him have his say. Right. You're accusing the guy of, like, a double murder, do you know what I mean? He's got family, he's got wife, he's got children. You can't just leave it at that, that he's yeah. guilty of this murder, you know what I mean? So he's come on. And when Paul found out I'd interviewed him, oh, what you got him on there for? He's a grass, he's here. And then he turned on me. Right. It's, it's that kind of world, you know what I mean? Right. They want it all their own way and they don't want to hear the bad news, the truth. I think as a writer, though, you, you have to... You can't, you can't do that. You can't, you can't say to the... A bloke, you've murdered two people on national television right. and not let him reply. You, know? right. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do it, you know what I mean? It's, so that's destroying a man's life. He might, his job, his boss might watch it, his neighbour might watch it, or his wife goes to the school gates with the kids right. and all the other parents are hiding up the other end of the playground, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. You can't do that to people. Yeah. That ain't right, you know what I mean? And I, I was going to ask you as well, um, you're 63 years of age now. Uh -huh. um, what have you got um, coming up, Bernie? You must have another book you're working on or are you having a break? No, I've, I've always got five or six books on the go. I've got fed up arguing with these conspiracy theorists on the internet. Right. So I thought I'll write the Ultimate Essex book. Well, 
tells every story, right, and it deals with every conspiracy theory. Right, OK. And it started off as one book, and at the moment, it's now four half a million words I've written, right? Wow. So I can't get them all in the book that thick. <laughs> so I'm releasing it as one, but it's four books. Wow. I've ne I'm, I'm nearly finished that, and then I'm going to wash my hands of Essex. Right. There's a lad in um, Durham whose sister got involved with this guy, and um, Julie Patterson, her name was. He was a bit of a nutter who was obsessed with serial killers, and he strangled and chopped up into all little bits and claimed that he'd eaten her, right? Or ate parts of her body with garlic and stuff. I don't believe him. And they've never found a body, so that's a really sad story because... Right. A boyfriend went into prison to kill him and ended up sent to the wrong prison and ended up hanging himself. And right. the, the whole family ever since, the kids are all locked up. The, wow. the whole family's just ruined generations of their family. And I can't really say about the other one because I've agreed to write a book about a fella who's well known, who's been accused of various, well, he's been on trial for various murders. And he doesn't want it released till he's dead. Right. Because he's going to tell the truth. Wow. In this book about what happened, but he don't want it released till he's dead. It'd be good to get him on the podcast, but we won't have his broadcast. <laughs> can bring him up and go, we can, we can do it now. <laughs> so that's fascinating. But he's a, a, he's a major guy and a, a lovely fella. A lovely fella, but um, I think he's going to outlive me. I keep saying oh. to him, fuck, you know, he's getting, you're 90 <laughs> now, come on. You know what I mean? But I think, I mean, that sounds really exciting, Ben. I mean, it's, it's good that you've got loads of things going on. Yeah, always, yeah. No doubt some of these books will end up be, becoming movies again. Yeah, I mean, you've had two now. I, I love writing them, but I can't be bothered promoting them. I wrote a book um, called Perpetual Insanity about a year ago. And I don't think you sold anything. I don't even, I've never advertised it once. I just, once it's out there, right, it's done. I'll right. forget about it, which is a bit crap, really. And I did a book with Nipperellis. Um, the guy who claimed his dad murdered the Essex boys. Right. He, uh, I wrote his book and he went, I need, he thought he was going to make thousands, you know what I mean? And uh, he said, I need money for fertility treatment. So I went, all right, well, you could have all the advance, you know what I mean? And I give him all the advance and he took it and then he slagged me off for ripping him off. Well, I never got a penny out of that book. Well. I like writing them, but I'm not interested in the other side because there is no money in them. Right. Last thing I'll say here, this is a common theme amongst these gangsters. When they're in their environment, what they say goes, and they believe that they are some sort of authority and wise guy and all the rest of it. But when they leave that world and then start dealing with businessmen, they get, they get absolutely slaughtered because they're not nowhere near as clever as they thought they was. You know, I know Carlton had issues about his money from Rise of the Foot Soldier, but he signed the contract, do you know what I mean? Do you know, do you know what it is? I think, I think the problem is, if you've written a book and you sell the book, right, and you get paid for the book, you know, you've, you've been paid. That's right? it, yeah, yeah. But, but the thing is, obviously, you know, Nobody knew when they made Rise of the Foot Soldier 1 that there was going to be six movies. Nobody knew that, right? If they did, then maybe Carlton would have said, well, I want to be in all of them and I want to be paid every time there's a film made and I want this and I want that. 
but we didn't expect there to be any anymore. We just thought it was a one-off movie, and I'm sure he didn't think there was going to be any more. But it's like you can't go back and change history. So if, if I signed a contract with you and I said, I'm going to pay you this much money for this thing, and then something else happened, you can't come back and go, well, actually, can we just change that contract because I don't like it now? And, and it's like, you know, if, if anybody pays me any money to do something, um, I always take it thinking I'm getting paid money to do this and I might get some more, I might not get some more. It might be a success, it might not be a success. But if it isn't a success, I don't cry about it. And if it is a success, I don't cry about it. So I've agreed to that. Do you know what I mean? So well, what, what, what happened with me, this photographer, Brian Anderson from Glasgow, came to me and said, I want to do these big black and white photos of all these villains before they die. You know I think you? I saw that. It's a, it's a great book. It's a beautiful book. book. And I knew how I wanted it to be. And so I'd sold an house and I was invested 20,500 quid in this book, right? Right. And the deal with me and Brian was we had 50-50 of the profit, right? Right. So it, it, it's a beautiful book, right? It's really classy book, right? It's not crap print paper or, or anything. It's beautiful, right? So I paid the 20500 When it comes to the country out, because I flew to China to get it made, right? And I'm sat with these Chinese people in these warehouse getting it made. And then I come back and you had to pay three, three grand some sort of import money, right? And then I had to store it, these... 13 pallets of books had to be stored. Every time I sold one, I had to buy two quid's worth of packaging, 10 pound recorded delivery. Right. But every time he saw a book being sold, he's thinking, there were 50 quid, right? He's thinking 25 for me, 25 for him. Right, right. And so it got to the end and we never, it wasn't a book what would ever mass sell, right? right. We, we were naive, right? And there was 2,700 books left or something. And I said to Brian, I can't buy the storage no more because Amazon will start at 50, They'll drop it to 25. They're selling it for a tenner in the end. Right. Cost more than that to post. Right. Do you know what I mean? So I said, you can have all the books, right? If you can do something with them, have them. So he got in touch with them and he too slow and they pulped them, right? So then he started saying, I never got no money out of that. I said, Brian, I've got a list of everyone who bought the book, right? Everybody. We'd done faces two and it was all finished, just had to be printed. I said, we'll get, you know, say there's 2,000 people bought the book. We'll get 2,500 printed or 2,000 something printed, right? And all that's profit because I've spent all the... No, and you got Paul Ferris involved and you've robbed me, you've nicked all this money off me. Okay, have you got any idea how much money I've lost? Do you know what I mean? But that's how they yeah. think. They, right, they, right. They've got no brains, you know what I mean? They're going, you sold it for 50, you owe me 25, you know what I mean? Right. No, no. So in the end, I went, I'll tell you what, Brian, Forget faces too, I'd turn it right in the bin right. and oh, I don't want to give you a penny, you know. Right. So I just scrapped it, which is a shame really because right. it's a great book, you know. Um, so anybody that wants to find out what books you've got coming out, Bernard, or, um, you know, they want to keep up to date what you're doing, what, where, where can they find you? Ask people on the internet because they know more about my life than <laughs> I do. <laughs> But no, you, have, uh, <laughs> you, you must have you, you're on Facebook. Twitter, Just Facebook, Facebook. yeah, okay, yeah. So. Or, or Amazon, Amazon, okay. Amazon's good. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. But there's some great books on there, and some great stories. People like Wayne Barker, probably no one's ever heard of. Uh, Lou Yates and old guys like that. Great stories, you know. What I mean, Hateland's a great book, I think. Right. And the Essex ones are probably the worst, to be honest. It's all crash bang wallop. You know, right. and there's no, you don't really get to know the people in them because they're drugged out their brains all the time. Right. Well, Bernie, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, popping your cherry 
with the Criminal Connection podcast. This is the first and the first and the last. Was it really that bad? No, not at all. No, no, no. But uh, you know, they're not my thing. But right. as it was you, I can't resist. Thanks for watching and listening to the first episode of the Criminal Connection podcast. We'll be back next week. Make sure you go on our socials at Criminal Connection Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.